0: It is an incredible privilege to be able to read God's word without fear, Um, uh, and I don't think Australia would rate on the top 50 countries, so um, let's take advantage of that blessing and read God's word. Now, Luke chapter 18, uh, verses 9 to 17. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. The people were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. This is God's word.
1: Thanks for that reading, Steve. Um, It's great to be with you. Thank you for choosing to be here tonight, our first time back singing behind masks. It's exciting. Um, For those of you who are not up to where we're up to, um, the last number of weeks we've been looking at Luke's gospel. We've been actually working through Luke's gospel over a number of years and at this point in the gospel Jesus is heading up towards Jerusalem and he's almost there this is the end of the journey and he's got some last things that he wants to say about what it means who's able to enter into his kingdom and then if you're a part of his kingdom what does it look like to live as a member of his kingdom and so those themes are going to come up again in tonight's passage so I'm going to pray because we're dependent on God to enable us to understand this and put it into practice. I invite you to pray with me. Jesus, we do thank you that you've given us your word. It's in a language that we can understand. You've given us this place where we can come together with others who likewise are longing to understand what it means to live for you. Uh, We pray that as we spend some time now thinking about these words, that you would enable us not only to understand them, but that by your spirit you'd actually help us to put them into practice, that we'd respond to them rightly so that our lives glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Self-confidence can be a good thing, a very good thing, much preferred to self-doubt. But there are times when confidence can lead to disaster. I'm one of those who've been known to push the boundaries at times. When the petrol gauge in the car is low, I usually keep on driving looking for the the cheaper price that I know is just down the road and I'm confident that I can make it there even if the petrol light has been flashing orange at me for some time. Now my confidence did get me into trouble one time when my family was out near Tamworth and I didn't realise that service stations closed before dark. Uh, But a night in the in-laws' motorhome parked next to a closed service station meant that we were back on the road early the next morning. No trouble. Now, likewise, I uh, insisted when we lived in Thailand that extra time at the airport is wasted time and that until your name is announced over the PA, they haven't actually invited you to get on. And on this, my my confidence hasn't failed me yet. I haven't missed a plane yet. The benefits of confidence I think is seen probably most clearly in sport. And so Steve Smith, Australian cricketing legend, can pull off all sorts of audacious cricket strokes that if I was out in the middle probably wouldn't turn out quite so well. For me to have anything remotely approaching the confidence that he has would be reckless ignorance of my complete inability. But Smith is justified in his confidence. His track record proves that he deserves to be out there in the middle. Confidence can be beneficial, even necessary. But what is our confidence? Can we ever be sure that God accepts us is our confidence in ourselves in something that we are in something that we do what is our confidence now similar to last week Luke tells us up front who Jesus target audience is Jesus told this parable verse 9 to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else which helps us by alerting us to who Jesus' warning is directed to. But at the same time that it helps, I think it's also dangerous. Dangerous because we might assume that we can now safely switch off for the next 10 minutes. This is a message for someone else, something that's not my issue. This is something that Eddie, down the end of the row, needs to hear but is irrelevant to me. This passage that we're looking at tonight shows that we're all in danger of being eddy. These two short accounts reveal that it's far too easy to have confidence in the wrong thing. In both the parable and then the following account of the little children being brought to Jesus, there is a focus on evaluation. In the first part, in verses 9 to 14, there's our evaluation of ourselves. And then in the second part, from verses 15 to 17, there's our evaluation of others. So let's look at what is our confidence. The apparent simplicity of parables means that we can too quickly make assumptions about what this passage means. Like people who are watching a movie that they've already watched many times before, when we read that two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other tax collector, we already know that the Pharisee is the bad guy. That's what the word means to us. A Pharisee is a self-righteous hypocrite, someone who immediately disgusts us. But Jesus' original listeners would have heard a comparison of two people, one who deserved to be confident and the other who had no runs on the board at all. Notice the link back to the passage that we looked at last week. Praying is something that Jesus expects his followers to do. Those who are part of his kingdom pray. It's the evidence of, it's an outworking of the faith that they have, that as they await for the coming of the Son of Man who's going to bring justice to the world, who's going to make everything right again. And from the outside, it looked like the Pharisees were the experts on prayer. They were the ones who knew how to pray beautiful prayers, the ones who others looked up to as the example of how it's done. And so in modern Australian terms, I think this is like saying two people walked out onto the SCG to bat. One, the informed number four captain of the Australian cricket team. The other, a nobody who's never scored a run in his life. It's a no-brainer who is going to go home from the temple, a hero. And true to form, the Pharisee takes his place. His usual place, verse 11 says, he stood by himself. This is a man who is supremely confident. He has been here before. He knows exactly what he's doing here. And notice that his confidence is based upon comparison. He's thankful to God that he's not like others, glad that he's not a robber, not a wicked person, not, not an adulterer. All things that we can nod along and agree, they're good things to avoid. But turning it from merely a theoretical comparison, the Pharisee makes this intensely personal. Thank you, God, that I'm not like that tax collector over there. Which shows that the Pharisee is a prime example of the summary statement in verse 9. Someone who looked down on everyone else. He's arrogant. He tells God his self-evaluation of his own performance and how much better he is than others. I fast twice a week and and I give a tenth of everything that I get. The unspoken condemnation, the unspoken comparison being that this tax collector lives it up on fancy food and wine all the while storing up money for himself rather than being generous to the poor. The Pharisee's prayer reveals that he's confident that he has already met all of God's requirements. He deserves God's favour because he had done everything that God said we must. He hadn't just passed the test, he had aced it. And while we as Aussies despise people who blow their own trumpet, you've got to admit that the Pharisee has a pretty compelling argument. He doesn't disobey. He doesn't hurt people. He does what is right. He, did, he even exceeds some of God's expectations. He does more than what the Bible expects of him. He's the classic example of someone who ticks all the boxes. I've been involved in a few job interviews in my time, and the Pharisee is your ideal applicant. He's got the right training, he's got all the right experience, his referees check out. The point that Jesus is making is that the Pharisee looked like he had it all, looked like he was a shoe in for the kingdom of God. And in comparison with him, this tax collector was surely the ultimate example of someone whom God will definitely reject in our time we accept that paying taxes is a necessary thing and our our only grievance really is how much we have to pay one of the people that I ride with regularly works for the ATO and we stir her continuously about her job but everyone actually likes her in the end Now, in Jesus' time, anti-tax collector sentiment was not light-hearted banter. By collecting taxes, this Jewish man was involved in evil behaviour that made him an outcast from his society. Firstly, he was working for Rome, which meant he had betrayed his country. And secondly, tax collectors were renowned for taking much more than they were required to Being a tax collector was basically a license to steal. If you've watched The Chosen, a show that's on YouTube that you can watch for free, I think that their portrayal of Matthew, the tax collector, nicely captures the disgust that Jews felt for fellow Jews who had become tax collectors. Tax collectors were wealthy, but they had become so by selling out their own people by turning their backs on God. In our time, it would be like trying to justify being a drug dealer, because I have to pay my school fees at the local Christian school. Tax collector was not a job title. It was to be accused of being a traitor, a cancer on their society, someone who defied rather than submitted to God. And having drawn attention to this tax collector, the focus now shifts onto him. This is a man who who already feels exceptionally uncomfortable at the temple, who's trying to hide from the spotlight as it's shined on him. In our language, he's snuck into church late, sitting up the back, hoping that no one's going to see him there. He's got business to do with God, but he knows that nobody else welcomes him there. And notice the difference in his posture. The Pharisee stands by himself, chest puffed out, head raised. The tax collector, on the other hand, won't even look up to heaven. This is a man who is deeply ashamed of himself. Now, I'm guessing that most of us sitting here have been here at some point, caught red-handed, confronted. We hang our heads in shame and can't look the person that we've offended in the eye. Last week, Mark told us about his cute kids asking for ice blocks. This is not the cute kids, this is your kids who are rebels, who've gone off the rails completely, who constantly defy their parents. And now they've taken the family car against strict orders and they've crashed it, writing it off. This is me, caught out in year five, cheating on my exam at school. But far worse than standing before a teacher or a parent, the tax collector stands downcast before God. And what is his prayer? God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The tax collector knows and fully understands that he does not meet God's requirements. And because he can't, all that he can ask for is mercy to ask God to not hold against him all the things that he agrees rightfully excludes him from relationship with God. This is the middle order batsman getting duck after duck, playing the same silly shot, talking to the selector, saying, I know you've already given me chances. I've blown each one, doing the wrong thing. I ask you to let me play again. The tax collector is confident of just one thing that he doesn't deserve God's favour. That's it. And with that, Jesus hits them with the punchline, verse 14. I tell you that this man, not the other, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. What? Are you crazy, Jesus? This guy has proven over and over that he's just going to let you down again. You're picking the wrong man. And yet again, we're confronted with the upside-down kingdom. The one who enters the kingdom is the one who admits that they're not worthy to. The one who looks like they're the first choice is excluded. And there are no exceptions to this. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled the only way up is down this is a great demonstration of what it means to repent to acknowledge that we have been walking in the wrong direction and admit there's nothing that we can do to make it right again to ask God to pay the price because we don't have the means to to accept the label sinner not as an admission that I'm just as bad as everyone else, but to wholeheartedly admit that I don't deserve to be in his kingdom. This is not false humility, not simply being sorry because we got caught, but to acknowledge that there's something fundamentally wrong with me and there's nothing that I can do to fix it. And Jesus says in response, welcome home. You've ticked the only box that's on the form. If you have that attitude, I accept you into my upside-down kingdom. And it goes against everything else that we've ever known or experienced. If you're going to get into the uni course that you want to, you have to get the marks. If you're going to get the job that you want, you need to perform well in the interview. If you're going to make a meal that tastes good or make your house clean, it takes effort. If you want a spot on the cricket team like Steve Smith, you have to earn it. And the assumption of the Pharisee is that that's what it takes to be in the kingdom. If I do what is right, God will accept me. If I'm good, then surely He'll let me in. And Jesus says, You've got it all wrong. Only one thing is needed to admit that you don't deserve it. Any contribution that we can make is like trying to offer to pay off your mortgage with monopoly money. You can imagine the scene with the bank manager, can't you? You've arranged a meeting and you're, you're super excited that you're finally going to put this enormous debt behind you. You come in and you sit down and you put your wads of nice orange 500s this is about ten thousand. So think how many, how big the pile is, to pay back all of this money. And he responds, "What's this? What is this? This doesn't take one cent from your mortgage. Your money is worthless to me. Get out of my office and stop wasting my time." Now another person comes in after you and sits down in the same seat, and says, "I'm really sorry, sir." I know I've defaulted on my loan and and you've already been lenient in the past. I still have nothing with which I can pay you back. Please give us more time. Please extend mercy. Ah, yes, of course. I'll make the arrangements right now. Which bank? None on this earth, that's for sure. (laughs) Unless Jesus had told us that this is the only way into his kingdom, we would have to conclude that this is too good to be true, that the only thing required is that we recognise our need for mercy. And so it must thrill our hearts that God promises that this is how generous he's going to be, that I don't have to try harder, that I don't have to perform better, to do more, to be something that I can't. I just have to come to Jesus admitting that I've got nothing that makes me worthy. The only confidence I can have, the only confidence that any of us can have, is that God is merciful to repentant sinners. That's it. Which is not to be harsh or down on ourselves. It is to finally stop evaluating ourselves according to our own criteria, to stop comparing ourselves with others and coming to the conclusion that we're as good or perhaps a little bit better and thinking that that's good enough for God. There is only one way into Jesus' kingdom, to admit your own unworthiness and accept his mercy. Have you done it? Don't assume that because you're sitting here in this room that you already have. The Pharisees stood in the temple, the holiest place in Jerusalem, and went home still needing to repent. Whatever you do, Don't go home from here tonight still needing to repent. Receive God's mercy. He wants to pour it out on you. It is terribly humbling, but the rewards are out of this world. Now, even if we do get this right, we're still not quite out of the woods. Because even though it's clear that we are saved by God's mercy, what criteria do we then use to evaluate others? Verses 15 to 17, the second section we're going to look at, have been used to make all sorts of claims that all God wants us to have is a simple, childlike faith, that we shouldn't discuss complex theological issues, that anyone under a certain age is already accepted by God. But in line with what comes before and what comes after this section, it is better to see that Jesus is rebuking the use of a wrong criteria for evaluating others. Hopefully, if you've been coming to WBC for any amount of time at all, you already understand that the only reason any of us can be right with God is that Jesus paid the price on the cross for our sin. Nothing that I've said so far is news to you. We know it, and hopefully we're eternally grateful for it. We rejoice that we are saved though we never deserve to be. But in practice, we often then go and change the criteria for others. We put barriers in the way of others receiving mercy. It seems that back then in Jewish culture, that kids weren't considered important enough to use up Jesus' valuable time. They were perhaps unable to comprehend the deep matters which he was speaking about. Perhaps they weren't able to serve him or be involved in spreading the message of the kingdom. And so these parents who were bringing kids or babies to Jesus were just wasting Jesus' time, diverting him from doing the job that he was supposed to be doing. And Jesus' response is immediate and counterintuitive, verses 16 and 17. But Jesus called the children to him and said, let the little children come to me. And do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. This is a must. These kids weren't the exception to the rule babies exemplified the necessary criteria which is needed to enter the kingdom of God. They weren't a distraction from the main thing. They were a demonstration of it. And so what does it mean to receive the kingdom of God like a child? Well, I certainly would love for Jesus to sit down and just to explain it in a little bit more detail than he did, uh, to explain piece by piece so that we don't get it wrong. Now, he doesn't. But nevertheless, we can be confident, given the context, that it means to recognise our complete and utter dependence on him. Everything in this section is pointing to the fact that Jesus accepts those who are normally unacceptable, that the kingdom is not for the good but for the repentant. And given that this retort is directed right at the disciples, I think that we must be all ears if their danger was to receive mercy and then restrict mercy being given to others, then we would be reckless to think that we can't fall in to the same mistake. And so we have to stop and ask, what are we doing that puts up walls rather than welcome home signs? When new people do come to our church or people who are different from you, are we quick to say hello to them and invite them into our conversations? Do you come here week by week, intentionally looking out for somebody who's perhaps sitting on their own? Or do you only talk to someone in your own age bracket, someone, when someone at the same life stage as you, someone who shares your interests or passions? Do we use jargon to talk about Jesus, knowing exactly what it means for us and those on the inn but by doing so, leaving others out of our conversation. Does a person's criminal record or religion, how they dress or their sexual practices determine if we're willing to include them or we exclude them? As I interact with my next door neighbour, does their need for mercy overcome my desire for comfortable conversations? There are so many different ways That we can put up walls instead of welcome home signs when we demand people to change before they join the kingdom and if we do then we need to repent we recently put in a water tank at our home under the stairs it fits there nicely and the water that lands on our roof now runs through the gutters and downpipes into this fantastic storage to be used to water the gardens when it's not pouring with rain. Now, it's a decent-sized tank, but I could not believe that how quickly it filled up after we actually installed it. And now what do I want? I want a bigger tank (laughs) to catch all the water that at the moment is just running out of the pipe at the other end when it overflows and going down the drain. It's wasted. And I think that that's what we do with God's mercy. He pours it out on us generously. And we want more and more. God's mercy is so good that we want to store it up. But the necessary action when we receive mercy is to pass mercy on. We're designed to be garden hoses, not water tanks. And so, as we go from here, may our prayer not be, thank you, God, that I'm not like that Pharisee. May instead we be people who are confident that God is merciful to repentant sinners. And so, may we live our lives in the pursuit of letting everyone know that He's waiting to pour out His mercy on any who are willing to give up their self confidence. And instead, place their full confidence in Him. Let's pray. Merciful Jesus, thank you for revealing the unbelievable that though we can't earn it, that we can never be good enough, that we can't tick all the boxes, in the end, there is only one box to tick to admit that we're not worthy and to trust in You because You've taken our place, You've paid the price for our rejection of you and you've enabled it to be possible for us come to come back into relationship with you. We thank you that you are a merciful God. You didn't have to be but you've chosen to be and we're so grateful for it. Lord I pray for those who as yet haven't received that mercy that they would consider this and recognize the incredible offer that it is. Take it for themselves and come into your kingdom. For those of us who've been a part of your kingdom whether for a short time or long, I pray that you would enable us to be garden hoses rather than water tanks. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.